The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Just want to remember where we have been over the last few weeks, where, where we are. Um, remember, Israel has lost its temple uh, during the Babylonian invasion in 586. So um, Babylon came into Jerusalem, into the I mean, more, more specifically to the land of Judea, and over three successive campaigns uh, ransacked all of, of Israel, essentially. 605, 597, and eventually in 586, finished it off. That was the largest deportation. Not only did they come in and conquer and ransack the temple and tear it down brick by brick, but then they took off the largest percentage of people came there in 586, hauled them away in, into captivity, and... Um, and so, you know, they, they, they took off the best and the brightest. Everybody that was worth anything in Israel was gone into Babylon. And they stayed there for, you know, from the beginning of it, seven, better part of 70 years uh, there in captivity. And so um, this is a, a, it was a, obviously a, a really big deal. Israel's temple is gone. That was the first temple that they had. That was Solomon's temple. So what we're going into now is a period where we're going to see the second temple being built. So w- this period of, of history, of Israel's history, would be call, referred to as Second Temple Jerusalem. All right? Um, so that second temple means it is the second time they built a temple. <laughs> it's very simple. See, we don't have creative names, right? We don't. It is pretty easy to figure out once you know what's going on. But the temple was torn down, and so they're out in exile. And last time we saw that in Ezekiel, right there at the end of Ezekiel, he gets this vision where he, from God where he sees a temple, a new temple. And it's sort of um, interesting. It's got a lot of odd features to it and a lot of things that we looked at last time. And, and, and I just want to acknowledge again, in case you didn't hear me, there are many interpretations of what that temple is that he sees. I'm consider it to be a physical temple that will one day be built. I don't have a problem with those people, all right? So just so you know, I hope they don't have a problem with me. I don't necessarily see it that way, but that's okay. Um, Other people, and I would be one, that would see what uh, Ezekiel saw as a uh, heavenly temple, God's throne room, as it were, that will one day occupy the entire earth. And that means that all wickedness will be eradicated, and that all uh, the righteous will be in the presence of God as the high priest would have been pre- present in the presence of God once a year. Uh, this, will be, this will occupy the entire earth. We will dwell with him. So we see that pattern both in Ezekiel 40 to 48 as well as Revelation 21 and 22. That seems to be the expectation there. So, um, but the point is that Israel has this, uh, is given kind of this vision of it won't always be this way. You're in exile and you're in Babylon, and you're there for punishment, and God tells them, hey, go into the land and settle there, live there, pray for the prosperity of the land around you, flourish there, integrate into society, don't intermarry, but integrate, right? So you you go to, you attend the 4th of July parade and all that kind of stuff, you know, do all those kind of things, but but you're in exile, and you're there for punishment, and but it won't always be this way. And so the vision of, of Ezekiel really represents a time in the future where God's glory will again dwell on the earth with His people. All right, 
So we're heading now into how do the Jews get from Babylon back into the land of Judea. We're going to be there uh, for a few weeks where we're going to look at Ezra, Nehemiah in coming weeks. This one is right between being released from how they get out of Babylon and just where the book of Ezra and Nehemiah begin. And so we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at that as the people try to get back into the land. But as we think about that, here's what I want you to kind of process. How is history formed? Like when you look around you and when you see all of the events taking place around you, they look like just random happenstance, don't they? I mean, a lot of things that take place around us seem to be just chance occurrences that take place, you know, every day. The things that we do. A person cut us off in traffic, and then we went to the grocery store, and we met this person there at the grocery store, and we saw this thing, and we did that thing. And all of these things seem like these are plans that we've made, and, and this is how our day shapes up, and, and it's got its interruptions, and it's got its happiness, and it's got its sorrows, and it's got all of those things. But, but how, how, how does your day actually, how is it actually shaped? How are, how are our lives actually formed? When you, this is the part of history that I absolutely love, and part of the reason why I wanted to do this in going through the Bible is because when you study history, you begin to see a sovereign hand shaping it. And I think when you look at history through that lens, that there is a sovereign God back here, in the background that you don't often see, maybe you never see, that is actively working daily, minute by minute, second by second, while you sleep, crafting how all of these things take place, upholding the world by the word of his mouth. In other words, all those atoms that make up your body or anything else, the pew you're sitting on, that are right now held together and make up a pew or make up cloth or fabric or wood or whatever, all of that is being held together because he says so. Think about that, right? Not only is that the case, but has those atoms, who some of whom are, are created in the image of God, they're human beings, as they move around about their day, are moving around at His command, whether they know it or not. So when we look back at history, there's, there's a, there's a, because there's a part of me that's very sensitive to uh, a, a crowd that I'm teaching about history, right? Is, is, is that I, I don't want you to be bored. Right? Like, like I think about this and I go, and I go, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to put people to sleep. And I'm very interested in history and I recognize that. Not everybody is, Okay. But, but here's where I want your mind to go, and here's the lens that I want you to look through as we go over the next few weeks looking at this between the Testaments kind of period. Is I don't want you to think about history as this is, you know, just boring stuff that I'm not really interested about. Get back to the text of Scripture. I want you to think about it instead as God has actually crafted this. So my job for these weeks is really to say, all of this is divinely orchestrated. And I want to show you where I can, where it's evident that that was divinely orchestrated. And so we're going to, I hope, see that tonight. 
that what has happened here in the Jews being released from captivity in Babylon is nothing other than divine orchestration. It has to be, right? Uh, there's probably some other explanations, but they're going to be stretched really thin, right? <laughs> so, you know, at some point the evidence is just surmounting, right? I mean, okay. So that's the idea. So let's, let's think about some of the players involved here and how the story unfolds and what happens as a result to get us to the place where the Jews are released. And we're going to have some Bible passages tonight, too, that we're going to look at uh, that we'll see. So Nebuchadnezzar's empire um, didn't really last long after he died. So Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll remember, he's the big, he's the big kahuna of Babylon, all right? He's the one that led the campaigns to ransack uh, Judea. He's the one that built it to this military, to its military might. He's the one that captured them all. He's featured prominently in the book of Daniel, and you, you see him prominently in the book of Daniel. He, God makes him eat grass like an ox and all kinds of other things. We've looked at that already, but you get the idea. It, di it, it didn't last long, and the years that followed his death it was constantly one person vying for the throne over another, trying to take over the other. And then there's also inner, inner tribal conflict, civil war going on in Babylon. And there are all kinds of forces out there that are threatening Babylon. One of those forces is a, a, a group called Medea. And you need to just pin that in your mind, Medea. We're going to talk about them in just one second. In fact, the next slide. But Medea is out there on the horizon, and they're getting bigger, and they're getting stronger, and Babylon is undergoing civil war. I mean, you can probably, if you just think of like today's political climate, you can probably see some of how some of that might go inside a country where you got a country torn apart by just divisions, political divisions, right? We don't know what that's like, right? Okay, yeah. So you got country torn apart by political divisions, and then you see other countries out there growing really strong, seeming to have a lot of financial success, seeming to have a lot of military success, and all of a sudden you're going, how long is it before we're speaking that language, right? Uh, don't you think that sometimes? Okay, so they're thinking the same thing. You got Medea out there on the horizon. They're growing big and strong. And then you got this, this little, uh, you know, tiny little squabbling country called Persia that's also beginning to grow a little bit strong. All right, so there is uh, this kind of hint that Babylon is going to, to fall, and it comes in 550 BC when the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus, and the Median Empire go head-to-head -head in battle. All right. So what happened is Babylon is looking at Medea and they're going, man, they're getting strong. They're getting fierce. So what is it you would do? All right, you, you got your own country. You're, you're running Babylon right now. And you're thinking, okay, there's this country that's like kind of shares our border is very close. They're getting really bad. They might come in and attack us. What would you do? You start looking around at other countries and you go, who could be our friend? All right, we need to make some allies, and we need to make them fast. And so Babylon and Cyrus of Persia make a kind of a deal, and they, they, they you know, kind of make an agreement that we'll, uh, you scratch our back, we'll scratch your back, and we'll, we'll kind of help each other out that way and squash Medea. And so 
What happened, though, for Babylon is it turned a little bit sideways when Persia goes around Babylon and fights Medea, just goes head-on with Medea. Now, Persia is not big, and Medea is really big, and Persia whips them. So we got a problem now, because Persia is actually quite a bit stronger than what Babylon thought, and it shouldn't be Medea that they were afraid of, it should have been Persia that they were afraid of. So when Medea and the Persian armies met in a decisive battle, the victory went to the Persians, and the Median army, though was more numerous and powerful, the smaller army, Persia, was led by a military genius named Cyrus. And so the power of Medea was overthrown. I want you to pin that name Cyrus, like just tattoo it to the back of your forehead or something. I don't know. Somewhere where you'll remember it for a long time. Cyrus it plays a huge role in this era in human history. And probably, I mean, you know, there's Alexander the Great. There, there's all these greats of all time. You know, Caesar Augustus and all kinds of uh, different people. Cyrus should probably be amongst, amongst them for, for what he did and how just really kind of amazing on the scene that he, he really was. Um, he wasn't typical. Cyrus was a statesman. I skipped, skipped another slide on me. I want to slap this thing. Cyrus was a statesman and a military genius. How often do you actually see that happen? I mean, it's, it's virtually never uh, that you see somebody who can command a military and do it and have military strategy and everything down and also be a, a give bedside manner, make you feel like you're the most important person when they walk in the room. I'm going to show you what Cyrus did that just makes it so, so much different. He, he demonstrated the qualities of a statesman as well as those of a military commander. So when he goes in and he conquers Medea, the normal behavior at the time, even today, by the way, the normal behavior would be, guess what you are, Medea? Our slaves, right? So now, this is what Egypt did. This is what they all, this is what Israel did to a degree. They weren't supposed to do this, but they did this, right? Everybody did this at the time. Babylon, they just ransacked Jerusalem, and what'd they do? They took all the people, all the good people, and they made them their slaves. So Cyrus goes into Medea, whips them in battle, and then instead of making them his slave, he is installed as their king. And he gives them their life. He says, hey, you can just... Go about doing all the things that you're used to doing. Life is not going to change for you. The only difference is I'm your king. Now, Cyrus is the king of Persia and Medea, which we call this the Medo-Persian Empire. So instead of conquering them, he just unites them. He makes them friends. So this is the first part, which is super weird. This is, this is unheard of. No one, I can't emphasize enough, no one does this. All right? No one does this. So he goes in as a statesman and says, rather than make you slaves, you're going to enjoy equal rights to Persians. And we're just going to have a kind of a, a dual monarchy, as it were. All right? Now, 
Cyrus, as I said, and Persia, led by a, a, a man named Nabonidus, uh, they were allied because they had a common enemy in Medea. Do you see the problem? Now, they don't have a common enemy anymore because Medea and Persia are the same. It's the Medo-Persian Empire now. So once Cyrus assumed the throne of the, that adjoined Medo-Persian Empire, the common enemy was gone, and so the alliance between Persia and Babylon evaporated. You see why the, the, you, when they went to battle, uh-oh, now it was all over for Babylon. Everything was over but the crying. So, what does Cyrus do? Well, he waits about 11 years or so. It takes 11 years for this whole thing to develop. But in 539 B.C., October 12th to be exact, Cyrus marches through Babylon, and it, the victory is so decisive that city after city just opened their gates to him rather than fighting. And it's shocking how few people were recorded to actually have died during this battle. The king of Babylon obviously died, Nabonidus did. But um, the rest of the people were just, there was just not much fighting that was to be had in town after town as he marched through. And you want to know how he did it? So here's how Babylon, Babylon kind of got cocky. All right, part Part of them was obviously afraid that there's people out on the, out on the you know, horizon that are getting big and bad. But they had a giant river that was near impossible to cross. It's very hard to take an army across a river, just, just so you know. Planes don't exist and that kind of thing. And, and certainly it's not, you know, as far as the, the uh, what, what's the right word? The, getting the people from one place to another... The logistics, yes, that's the word I was looking for. The logistics of getting an army across a river through boat is just, it's hard, all right? So it's hard to do all that. So for, to some extent, Babylon felt a little bit protected because they have a body of water that is going to be hard to navigate. So when Cyrus gets big enough, he just takes his whole army up there on the edge of the Euphrates and they just start throwing in rocks. <laughs> and they, they dam up the Euphrates until it's seven tongues of water that are super shallow and they just walk right across. And then they go in and like a Mack truck over a Coke can just smash Babylon to pieces. Right? Okay, but here's where it gets interesting. What would Cyrus do? What, should, what, what would Cyrus do if he was like every other person? Well, he would walk in and he would say, Guess what you are now, Babylon? You are Persian slaves. So you serve at our command. But that's really not what he did. He actually goes in and he wins over the officials and the people in high position because he says that he is a champion of the Babylonian gods. That Marduk, the Babylonian chief Babylonian god, had given him the victory. And the reason he did this is because the previous king of Babylon, Nabonidus, had forsaken Marduk and had instead shifted all the worship to the moon god of Babylon. So when Cyrus walks in, he says, guess what Marduk has done? Marduk is mad because Nabonidus has done this and he's given victory to me. Here's also what, what Nabonidus had done. is Every year, Babylon celebrated the new year. And as tradition would go, under Marduk, the king of Babylon 
would, as a New Year's festival kind of thing, would ceremonially join hands with Marduk, and Marduk would reinstall the king as king every year. Well, you can imagine that at some point, if you shift worship away from Marduk, then you're not going to want to participate in that festival. Well, what does Cyrus do? It's exactly what he does. He participates in the festival as soon as that new year rolls around. So now, he has been installed as king, and Marduk has put him there, and he shifted the worship back to Marduk, which is what the Babylonian people wanted anyway. So you understand what Cyrus is doing. He is playing a totally different game than every other king that has really ever lived up to this point. It's totally different. This is why I think Cyrus should go up there in the Hall of Fame of Conquerors. I mean, if there is a Hall of Fame of Conquerors. Uh, but, you know, there's some people that did some really terrible things. But I'm just saying, like, if you're going to put the ones that had the political genius and the military might up there, he's got to be up there at the top. Because he's not going in and doing the same thing that everybody else did. He's playing the statesman game, and he's seeing that I can win friends and influence people far better with honey than with something else, right? He's going to attract more flies, or however the saying goes. All right. So, um, but what you have to know, this is very important. Him doing this did not signify any special devotion to Marduk on Cyrus's part. There is no evidence that he was a Marduk worshiper. Any more, any more than, than he was a worshiper of any other deity, of any other place that he went and conquered. He paid tribute, paid homage to the gods there, and all that for the people. And there, there was a saying, and I hope I can get this right. I didn't write it down. I should have... But it's, it was something like, one, one scholar said it this way, it was like, uh, Cyrus would bow down in the temple of any god as long as there was something to be picked up on the floor, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, he was politically savvy. And, to be honest with you, wasn't really a fan of keeping slaves. Now, I don't know what he personally had as far as slaves. I'm sure he had servants and things like that. I, I don't know, but... He wasn't really a fan of keeping people captive. He wasn't a fan of keeping people held against their will. Do you see where this is headed? So, he doesn't have any special devotion to, to Marduk, but he was sensible enough to realize that outward respect to the deities of his subject nations cost him nothing and would gain their submission and even their gratitude. So, it's against that background that he comes in as the one to release the Jew. You, you get this? Nobody that does this. And all of a sudden, here is one raised up to do this. Doing the math, he was probably somewhere around birth, about the time Israel was taken captive by Babylon. So you get what's happening here before they even get really into Babylon and settle there, the one to release them has already been born. Okay? So here comes Cyrus doing what nobody does, and it's against that background that we can understand the political motives of Cyrus' actions with regard to the Jews, the Assyrian 
and Babylonian policy of deportation that we've already seen had filled their empires with all of these exiles and slaves that were completely discontented. So, you, so here's Cyrus walking in, conquering Babylon, and he finds this just trove of people there who have been captured by Babylon who hate it, who hate being there. They, weren't, they were forced here against their will. And now that it's been overthrown, they have no intentions on staying, or they don't want to stay anyway. And so, as a wise administrator, he knew it was easier to control an empire full of contented subjects rather than discontented ones. So what does he do? Turns them loose. I don't know about you, but every time I've ever read, ever, ever read Cyrus releasing the slaves, you always have to think, why? Right? Why, why would he do that? Nobody else in history did that. I mean, still today, nobody really does that. And he did. So Cyrus then, as essentially king, uh, appoints Darius to be king over Babylon. Darius will eventually try to throw Daniel into the lion's den. You know, he's, he, that's the Darius. Uh, he's referred to throughout history in different, as different names, but Darius is the name that the Bible gives to him, and, and I think a lot of historians recognize him as Darius too. But Cyrus issues essentially two, decree, two decrees um, during that first year of Darius's reign, which is also the first year of his reign over Babylon. You see it listed a couple different ways in Scripture and things like that. The first one was the Jewish exiles can return. They can go back home. And uh, the second one was that all of the things that the Babylonians stole from the Jew, from the Jewish temple, remember when Babylon went in and ransacked the temple, they stole all the pricey stuff, and they took it back with them. And so uh, the two decrees were, you can go back and rebuild your temple, and all the stuff that Babylon stole from you, here it is, you can have it back and you can go rebuild it. Right? Pretty crazy. I mean, not only are we going to let you leave, we're going to pay you to leave. I mean, God did that with ten plagues in Egypt. And they were like, here, take our money, get out of here, you're a curse, right? But he didn't do that with them in exile. They left and, and then Cyrus paid them to leave. I'm, I can't emphasize enough, no one does this. No one does this. Gives them back all their possessions and says, here. But, but again, this is the M.O. of Cyrus. He goes into Babylon, and he in Marduk is he pays homage to Marduk. He goes into Median uh, towns and pays homage to their gods and things like that. He sees it as politically savvy, and so that's exactly what he does. He decrees them to be able to go, and and not only that, but he sees it as good favor for him. If there is a god out there, whomever he is, hey, it can't help to have me, you know, curry a little favor with him, right? That's the idea. That's the thinking, anyway, of secular people. So you get this in 2 Chronicles 36, 23. Thus Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, uh, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, sorry, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all his people, May the Lord, uh, his God, be with him. Let him go up. So that's, that's, you know, the first decree. Let him go up. 
And then we see the same thing, uh, an extended version of that in Ezra 1, 2 to 4, but it's basically the same thing. And then the second is there in Ezra 6, 3 to 5, where he actually commissions them to, to build, rebuild the temple. He says, In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth shall be breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasure. He's going to pay for it. And, and also, let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. You ever heard that? Okay. So, at some point, the evidence just starts to be just too much to say this is anything else. Now... The total number of people that are going back, Ezra tells us, is 42,360. Um, and that, then there's a, in addition to that, there are 7,337 slaves and 200 singers. And we see that in Ezra um, uh, 2, 64 and 65. It says the whole assembly together was 42,360, 65 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337 and they had 200 male and female singers. Um, so, uh, Nehemiah also, you know, takes place probably a year, about a, a um, hundred years later, and even notes that, look, Jerusalem was sparsely populated. There's not many people going back. Think, I want you to think about this as far as, as far as Israel goes. It's been the better part of 70 years that some of them have been captive. And the latest captives in 586, what, have been there some 50 years? I'm not, I'm not a math magician, but it's something close to that. Um, so you, you're talking about an entire generation that grew up in Babylon. You know, we, we realized one day when we had been here for four years or so, our kids, especially the two youngest, don't remember Texas at all. Andrew has, like, vague memories. Grayson has some little, few memories. Natalie has no memories. She'll tell you she remembers everything, but she doesn't. <laughs> That's because she's a girl and can't tell her. No, <laughs> I'm teasing people. Um, no. Uh, but, you know, we realized at some point that, like, even though they, they were born and raised, we feel like in, in Texas, they, they're Alabamian, you know? And... You know, that's fine by us. I'm just saying it, it's, it's interesting, you know, to think about that. But you got Jews that grew up there for 50 years, some 70 years. And now you've got prophets going, let's go back. And they're going, go back where? You know, I, I went to Babylon Elementary just down the road. And I went to the University of Babylon, you know. And, and so what are you talking about? Go to, back to Jerusalem. This is my home. You know, I'm used to eating this, not shawarma, you know, or whatever, whatever they'd have back there. So, so it, it, it became culture for them. So, so even to take 42,000, which is a depleted number from what they had, and, and Nehemiah is telling you, look, even 100 years later, it's still sparsely populated. This is not the booming metropolis that it was at one point. 
mainly because some many of the people opted to stay. I mean, think about it. You've got people that were rich and, and powerful and people that were creative and people that were successful. All of the best people went from Jerusalem back there and then they built a life there and they built a life for their kids. And because if you're successful in Jerusalem, you're probably going to be pretty successful in Babylon. And by all accounts, the Babylonian rule over the Jews while they were in exile was actually pretty generous. It's not like they treated them like, uh, like Egypt did back when they were enslaved there. I mean, Daniel has even elevated himself to a position inside the, the Babylonian government. They took the best and the brightest not to make them slaves and make bricks. They took the best and the brightest to design their websites and to do you know, all the stuff, that whatever they did, but, but to design stuff to actually help their society flourish. And so if those people came in and helped the society flourish, and they were commanded to by the Bible, and they had built a life there, and their 401k was looking awesome, and, this, and all the money they had in the stock market was great, then why would they pick up and move and go into the wilderness? Why? I mean, they're still in the Fertile Crescent. They're still in the Mesopotamian region. So they're still in, in the breadbasket of the world at that point. Why would we pick up and leave everything that we know to go rebuild society back in, in Jerusalem? So not many people went, and you can understand a little bit why. Now, so we see this kind of on the horizon, and we see like, okay, there's a lot of coincidences with what Cyrus did who he was, and, and, and just coming along at the right time to let the Jews free, and all those kinds of things, that seems like a pretty big coincidence. But, but here's why I think looking at history is important to look at it this way, is because the Bible's going to do the same thing. The Bible's going to tell you the same thing. You should look at history through the lenses of your Christianity. There's a, there's a passage in Acts where... A Roman governor stands up and people hail him as God and he doesn't correct them. And Luke tells you, well, before I say what Luke says, uh, if you go into secular history, um, it will tell you that he died of an infection in the bowels. In other words, he fell over dead three days after this happened and they did an autopsy and found this is essentially what happened to him. He had an infection in the bowels. Luke tells you he didn't correct him, and God struck him down with the angel of death. How is Luke looking at his death versus how is a secular historian, Josephus, looking at his death? Through the lenses of his Christianity. There's no Adam that moves, that even falls to the earth that wasn't there by God's direction and command. Okay, so what does it mean when we get to Cyrus? Well, Isaiah spoke of Cyrus as the shepherd of Yahweh. Look at Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. He calls him his anointed, whose right hand he held in order to empower him to subdue nations. Look at Isaiah 45.1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose 
the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So who's, who was it that opened those Babylonian gates when, when they walked in? Was it the people? Well, it was. Physically, it was the people. But who's the sovereign controller over the atoms that comprise those people that opened the gates? It is, it is the God of the universe. And the Bible is going to make sure you understand there may be lots of people do lots of things, but not an atom moves in this world without expressed dictation from God. And so the sooner we understand that, the better. And the sooner we understand that, the better we understand the prophets, the better we understand the way history, history moves, the way it develops over time. And yes, even the time period you live in, so you want to check out when it comes to the Bible, close the book of Revelation, and then turn on the news and go, oh my goodness, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, yeah, it is, but not because of anything that you're seeing on the news, but because of what's told to you in Revelation. It is going to burn. Yeah. And this is part of the process of how it burns. But the Bible also tells you, Christian, fear not, for I have overcome the world. So, what are you going to do? Well, either you're going to believe all the atoms on TV that tell you you need to hide and stack up your beanie weenie or whatever, right? <laughs> or you're going to trust that the Lord is sovereign and has his hand on, yes, this too. Even the most trying and evil times. All right. So, the Jewish exiles understood Cyrus's decree to be the doing of Yahweh Himself, both in Chronicles, Ezra, both of them interpret the de decree to be the fulfillment of the word of Jeremiah and maintain that it was Yahweh and not Marduk, as maybe Cyrus had kind of given to the Babylonians, who had inspired Cyrus to such a noble course of action. Um, I want you to look at this in 2 Chronicles 36, 22-23. So we read 36, 23 earlier, which was Cyrus's decree. But look at how the chron Chronicles goes into that decree. Okay, we won't read verse 23, just 22, because we've already read 23. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. And then he gives his decree. So how is the chronicler saying this happened? Was it just Cyrus decided, you know, I'm just a better guy than the rest of these, you know, nincompoops out here. And I'm just a smarter individual. No. The chronicles is going to make clear that you understand it was the Lord that stirred him up. Or, or, or what about Ezra 1 in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom, putting it into writing. Same thing. Both writers are going to make sure that you understand it is God who put this in the heart of, um, of Cyrus. Now, let's be sure we understand. Cyrus was no more a worshiper of Yahweh than Nebuchadnezzar when he extolled Yahweh before Daniel. Both, now, 
Nebuchadnezzar to a lesser extent in terms of he wasn't as politically savvy. Nebuchadnezzar was pretty uh, full of himself. All right. But uh, both of them were syncretists. You know what syncretist, syncretism is? Syncretism is when a politician will use your God to manipulate you. That's essentially what syncretism is. It's taking your God, putting it in his mouth, saying he believes it so that you will do what he wants you to do. That's the reason politicians use syncretism. And they were no different back then, but Cyrus was just a lot better at it than anybody else. And he could also command a military. All right? So he was just a, a, a jewel in history that accomplished God's purpose. But he was a syncretist nonetheless. He worshipped Marduk, and like, like I said, he would bow down and worship any god as long as there was something to pick up on the floor there. Right? So we're not looking at Cyrus going, oh man, he was amazing and he was the Messiah to be. No. No, he wasn't. He was God's instrument, just like some of the most wicked men in history have been and will continue to be. Because guess what? Guess what I am, what you are. We're crooked too, right? So God only uses crooked sticks because that's all he's got. But he always hits straight licks. Questions? I would too. <laughs> Explain that more. Yeah, um, it, it, I think it's difficult, you know, even if you go into China right now, you will see that Buddhism and Hinduism are becoming a syncretistic religion in China. And you will find Buddhists and Hindus at the same temple worshiping the same gods and bowing down to the same statues, making the same sacrifices, all the same things. And um, so syncretism, which is better definition is combining two religions, essentially, or combining multiple things. What these politicians are doing, like Cyrus, they're combining all kinds of religions in order to appease the masses, which is what politicians have done for a long time. But, you know, it's, it's really important, and I think, it's, uh, I think it's, it's fundamental to our Christian faith that we understand the exclusivity, like Bob is talking about, the exclusivity of Christ. We believe in salvation through Christ alone. And someone, you know, it, it comes down, there's sometimes, and this is, these are hard conversations to have. I'm not pretending these are easy, especially with family members. You know, there are damnable beliefs. You can believe things 
that are damnable, that make you worthy of hell, right? And denying the exclusivity of Christ does not just make you wrong, right? Paul, sa- Paul says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, he's saying, these are the right beliefs. If you confess with your mouth, not that Jesus is a Lord. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in other words, what if I was to say, I don't confess him as exclusively Lord then you are not saved. Period. So, I, I get that those are hard conversations to have with people, when, especially when they're family members who seem very close, and they seem like, I mean, yeah, I mean, Jesus come back, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, there's all this other stuff going on here where they do not obey Jesus in any respect. There's just no fruit at all in their lives. Like, not even... A, morsel at all of fruit? Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? That's not Lord at all. So do you really believe and confess that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead? Those are the conditions for salvation. Period. So, you know, it's really important that we as Christians understand that this doctrine, especially when it comes to evangelism, especially as, as we see, like even as we evaluate people in history, you know, they're good people. They're great people. There's some Mormons that outdo every single Christian out there in good works. But there are damnable doctrines. And believing that Jesus was created is a damnable doctrine. Go ahead. That's right. It does. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and if I could ex- take the football and run with it a little further too, uh, or the baton, whatever your metaphor is, um, the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead makes all the ones in the tomb subject to him. Period. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is king over everything. The one that cannot be killed is king. Right? That's it. So, who's king? Well, it's the one who can't be killed. I mean... Right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's real life or a video game. If you can't be killed, you're king. Right? You have officially dominated. And that is exactly what the resurrection of the dead means. And... And Paul says at the beginning of Romans, he, he was vindicated, validated, installed, if you will, as king. Jesus says that about himself when he raises from the dead and meets his disciples on the mountain in Matthew. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm re- I rose from the dead. What more do you want? Right? Who has any control over me? Even death itself 
can't fight me. Go ahead. Say that one more time. Many different halls. <laughs> Tell me what you mean. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so again, like you know, is part of our part of doctrine, and and I, and we'll just say this, especially when we have a little bit of time. Um, in evangelism, the the biggest what do you want to call this tool, weapon, whatever you want to call it. Pick your metaphor again. Whatever you want to use in your in a, your evangelism toolbox is Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Okay, so I, I'm in a conversation with somebody over here, and they're questioning. You telling me Jonah really got swallowed by a big old fish, uh, or or you telling me there was really a talking snake in you know Genesis three? And there's all kinds of good responses that we can get into those later. But look, if there was a guy two thousand years ago that died, and he was dead, dead. The kind of dead where you could poke him in the eyeball and he wouldn't flinch kind of dead. That's a dead. That's super dead. That kind of dead, and he rose from the dead, and is no longer there with the dead, but is out of the dead, and is walking around, not walking dead, but walking alive, then Jonah's on the table now, Right? Right? Am I right? Jonah is like, that is beans compared to someone raising from the dead. The talking snake? Psh, I got a talking donkey too. You want to talk about him too? <laughs> we, got, we got one of those. But all of that is now super possible if we live in a world where dead people get up from the grave. Because if we live in that kind of world, which is admittedly not a world that I feel like I experience all the time. The dead people I know all went into the grave. So I get you, that's not a world that I live in, but if we do live in a world where someone was dead and got up from the grave, then everything else is now possible. There's nothing that's impossible at this point, right? So then it all boils down to Jesus' resurrection. Well, the good news is that he got up from the grave and he showed himself to 500 people. And those 500 people then told like a ton of people, all right? And then the whole religion of Christianity that started off as a little tiny mustard seed in Jerusalem has spread to the sh from sea to shining sea, okay? And not only that, but those 500 people that, that saw him, ate with him, touched him, knew him beforehand, and now know him afterwards in his resurrection, not only did they tell a whole bunch of people, but they died because they told people, and they were tortured and their skin was peeled off them, and they were boiled, and they were beaten, and they were pushed off buildings, and they were beheaded, and they were crucified upside down, and they went through all kinds of terrible things, the worst things that you could possibly ever imagine a person going through, and they maintained their confession all the way through death. Now that's different than someone saying, I talked to Muhammad, and he told me this happened to him. That's different. It's qualitatively different. So what you believe is not only logically consistent, it's evidenced in history. And when you boil it down, the, the most important thing in all of our Christian witness, the resurrection of Christ, is the most historically attested event in human history.
So, what do we do? Well, we tell people that he rose from the dead. And when they bring up at the talking snake, but did he rise from the dead? But Jonah, did he raise from the dead? Answer that question first. And then let's talk about all the other ones. And I got some good responses for those ones, I think. Right? But, but, but let's talk about those first. Because what we're, what we, the God we worship governs history. And, and it's not as though he wanted Jesus to raise from the dead in some small little you know, corner in the dark and just, just trust me, it happened. He didn't do that. He showed himself to a whole bunch of people. Other questions? James. No. Yeah, when he, <laughs> that's the other part is, okay, well, now that he rose from the dead, where'd he go? Right? Well, now let's talk about judgment. This one's not so pretty, you know. But there's good news. You can be spared from judgment, right? So, you know, I, I think sometimes we get, we get in our heads about this, and it, it, it gets really hard to evangelize, and, and we see this, and we, it's hard to, like, say, you know, God governs history and, and kind of be that witness. But just testify to the resurrection of Jesus. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he's king. I think you need to submit your entire life to him as Lord and Savior. I think you need to worship him. I think you need to repent of your sin. I think you need to trust Christ, and I think you need to turn from that sin and follow Christ in the way that he would have you walk, and I'll help you do that. Go with me to church on Sunday. It's as simple as that. And if they say no, then you go, look, I wish it were different. And maybe one day it will be. Maybe somebody else will come along, and they're a lot better at this than I am even. And God uses them in a different way. And it's all seed that's being sown into the ground, okay? So just be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're, we're grateful for the way you govern history and the way you have even told us the ending, that you're going to bring it all to fruition in Christ. And we are, we can't wait for that. And we look forward to that day. And we even echo with with John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. We look around at the world around us and, and man, it does look bleak and terrible and awful. And sometimes it's hard for us to remember that you govern every molecule. There is no rogue particles in your creation. And we are grateful for that and comforted by that. And we pray that you would give us faith where we lack it. Help our unbelief, as it were. Please, Lord, help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.